Welcome everyone to the Grainmaker Wrestling Podcast, a Prairie Proud Wrestling Podcast covering everything from Winnipeg to worldwide. My name is Blair Pacheco. Hope you're doing good. Hope you had a good weekend. Mine was eh, not bad. It was good, a little bad. It was it was right in the middle, like Bill Alfonso. It was right in the middle. Um, but uh, hopefully you had a good one. There was lots going on in the city. Comic Con was here, and that is always a great time seeing people decked out in their their gear, their costumes, and stuff. Halloween was on Monday and there was wrestling in town too. And I was fortunate enough to see a couple friends from Alberta made their way and they were wrestling in town. So it was nice to catch up with them. And we recorded a little, uh, little video stuff, which should be out in the near future. And I also had the chance to do an in-person live recording of this, of this podcast with, uh, with Vance Nevada. If you aren't familiar with Vance, he is the author of uncontrolled chaos, an incredibly in-depth book about independent wrestling in Canada. If you are a fan of independent wrestling or just have a, a thirst for for learning, um, you should check out this book. It is very thorough, very in-depth, like I said. So we had a chance to talk about the book. We also had a chance to talk about his wrestling career. Vance has been wrestling for almost 30 years. He's currently on tour supporting the book. And uh, he's been able to do some wrestling along the way as well. But we talk about his start in wrestling, getting into it. Uh, he grew up in small town Manitoba and he's been able to you know, have this lengthy career. So we chat about that. He shares some stories just about different places he's wrestled, um, dipping down into the States for a bit, which is a, a fantastic story. And uh, yeah, honestly, he just shares some incredible stuff. So without further ado on the Grainmaker Wrestling Podcast, Vance Nevada. One of the things that I have always enjoyed learning about whenever I have a guest on the show is people that have influenced and impacted them. And today I am joined by someone who has influenced and impacted many of my past former guests. Today, today joining me is Vance Nevada. And Vance, how's it going? Amazing. It's, it's great to be here. Now, you uh, are wrapping up a little bit of a tour for your most recent book, Uncontrolled Chaos. Um, but we will get to that in a little bit. But I have to ask how someone from small town Manitoba has had the career that you have had lasting almost 30 years in the wrestling business. You know, I think it's probably the most unlikely journey of all. Uh, you know, I remember even, you know, back in high school, you know, I come from a small town, a farming town of 2,500 people. Uh, you know, so when you uh, commit a goal and actually have it printed in the yearbook that your goal is to become a professional wrestler, you might as well tell people that you want to go to Mars because <laughs> it seems that unlikely for people, right? If you're a, a rural kid and you want to be a professional athlete, then your aspirations have to be solely with the NHL, mm -hmm. however likely or unlikely that that might be. Mm -hmm. uh, so for me, at, you know, at 15 years old to say, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to be a pro wrestler, um, there was a lot of... Uh, abuse, I would say, mm -hmm. you know, both from peers that, that uh, thought it was stupid and that it was unrealistic. Or, of course, you have like sort of that high school mentality of, oh, that must mean you're gay because you want to roll around with other dudes. Yeah. So I faced that like, you know, for the for the two or three years of high school, like nonstop, you know, and there would be, uh, you know, jokes in the yearbook where it was like, you know, you know, could you imagine, you know, uh, 
advanced Nevada watching, you know, figure skating instead of wrestling or, you know, his goal is to be a, you know, a WWF wrestler. But, you know, the reality is 10 years later, he'll still be like wrestling in the playground with Rod, you know. Something like that, I mean, it's, I'm sure it can discourage so many people because when you do say, you know, you say, when I grow up, I want to be a wrestler. That almost goes with like when people say, I want to be an astronaut or yeah. things like that, you know. So to actually be able to hold on to that and maintain it is a huge, like, huge coup to yourself. I think that there's probably, you know, and if there's any kids listening to this right now that have an unconventional dream, it might not be professional wrestling, but it may be a career that no one in your high school has ever accomplished. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, sometimes it can be very hard to, to declare it and then go out and do it. Mm-hmm. But, well, you know, what I found is, you know, and th- this is a long-term goal, so this is not as helpful to the kids listening to the podcast. But now when I go back to my hometown, and I've been out of high school for well over 20 years, yeah. uh, to go back to my hometown and see my friends, and they say, you know what, that's actually really cool. You, know, like you just said you were going to go out and do this, and you've done it. And then to look at that old yearbook and see, okay, well, who else followed through mm-hmm. you know, on their dream? Maybe it was they were going to go become a pharmacist or an RCMP officer mm-hmm. or whatever that goal was. Did they follow through? Mm-hmm. You know, and are they pursuing you know, their passion to the highest level? And, and that's really what I look at is, you know, I'm, I'm no better than anyone else. Um, I just, I knew what I wanted mm-hmm. uh, and I went out to get it yeah. and, and, and worked as hard as I could at it. it. For the most part, it seems like very few people are able to work a, you know, live a life of something they are passionate about. You know, most people, they work their nine to five jobs. They go in, they put in their time, that's it. But they don't love what they do. But you, you you're able to love what you do and that's that's huge you know i think the really cool thing is that through wrestling you know i've been able to pursue so many different avenues so you know i was always interested in writing Mm -hmm. and you know when i was in high school you know when you had the the guidance counselors discouraging you saying we can't tell people you want to be a wrestler because Mm -hmm. we we don't have a career path for you through academia to get you there so Let's identify something else. Mm-hmm. I said, well, the other thing that interests me is writing. And I did a little bit of writing for my community newspaper, you know, as a 15 and 16-year-old kid. Um, and then I was able to, to parlay that and, and, and combine those loves. So a lot of times with independent professional wrestling, there's no budget to do anything. Mm-hmm. So you've got a very bare-bones crew. You know, you, you get to a building and you set up a ring. Maybe you have a few posters up around the town and away you go. So, you know, I took on roles as sort of the unofficial press officer for the wrestling organizations to make sure that those press releases were getting to the newspapers. Mm -hmm. And probably my greatest success in terms of a string of press uh, was in the summer of 2001 in Winnipeg uh, with Bobby Jay for Top Rope Championship Wrestling. We had this idea one time, and it was inspired by something that they had done on the Newfoundland independent scene. Um, You know, in Newfoundland, they created a political party. Okay. And had Sailor White, who's a former WWE tag team champion as one of the moon, original Moondogs, mm-hmm. uh, as the leader of this party. And they did some really outlandish stuff in terms of like, well, you know, we're going to combat, you know, this illegal offshore fishing. And they did a press conference down on the dock and Sailor White was like body slamming guys through tables and stuff as, as a political candidate. Yeah. I thought, well, I don't, I don't know anybody in Winnipeg, you know, who's juggling like a straight job. And, and wrestling, you know, on evenings and weekends wants to put their name to something like that. 
like if being a wrestler is way out there, like being a wrestling politician is way, way out there. Yes. But what we did was at the time there was a political party at a national level called the Canadian Alliance Mm -hmm. and they had a leader called Stockwell Day. Mm -hmm. And he came in and there was kind of this splash of very non-traditional politics. Like he would jet ski up to his press conferences and things like that. I vaguely remember that. So after about six months when sort of the honeymoon period ended, he had a lot of dissident members that were you know, but jumping ship from the party. Mm-hmm. So I had this idea and I called Bobby J who was the promoter at the time. I said, Bobby, let's send a press release out inviting Stockwell day and all of the people that are having conflict in his party to come to Winnipeg to Chalmers community club. And we will donate the ring time and they can have a battle Royal winner take all for mm-hmm. party leadership. And Bobby's not a very political guy. He kind of just waved me off. He's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Sounds fun. Yeah. So I went home, I crafted this press release, and we sent it out to all the Winnipeg media outlets. Well, the next morning, CJOB picked it up. The Winnipeg Sun ran it. Um, you know, we were page two. Mm-hmm. And I remember Bobby J starting to get the calls from the media, and he was telling them, excuse me, i got to call you back. And then he called me and said, please tell me what you've just done. <laughs> and, you know, as, as a result, you know, we were able to, you know, do this, uh, this series of things with Doug Lunny, where, you know, we got... Connected with Doug, and as Doug was doing the story, because he thought it was just kind of a fun, tongue-in-cheek story. Mm-hmm. You know, people like to make fun of wrestling, but they love to make fun of politics. Mm-hmm. So that that relationship with Doug, you know, revealed that you know he had done a lot of things in his career as a journalist. You know, he had flown with the Snowbirds, and he had done you know tactical exercises with the military, but he had never wrestled professionally. It was always on his bucket list to do. Okay, so I said, okay, well, let's figure out how we do that. And as a result, then we had like a series of articles over the course of the summer in the Winnipeg Sun, usually page two. So we had incredible visibility in that summer of 2001, uh, leading up to a match between Doug Lunny and myself. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as we were sort of going into that night, I'm thinking, okay, well, the gravy train has ended. Like this has run its course. I'm like, I got another hook, Doug. Hey, what do you feel about this, Doug? How about if I lose this match? I have to be the sunshine boy in the Winnipeg sun Mm because that's the most degrading thing there is. So of course I lost and Mm -hmm. was the sunshine boy, but it actually opened the door for top rope to have a series of sunshine boys. So you saw AEW superstar Kenny Omega as a sunshine boy and playboy Will Damon and Shane Madison. And that's how that all transpired Mm -hmm. over one press release that sort of inspired this six months of publicity for the organization. That is huge. I mean, the Winnipeg Sun was all, always seemed to be a publication that would uh, support wrestling, you know, by various columns or, you know, being sponsors, things like that. Yeah. So for them to uh, run that article, to add the, you know, promotion, be almost, you know, yeah, we'll say promotion behind what you guys were doing because it did increase, you know, the eyes on the product at the time. Absolutely. So that's huge. Yeah, so the, the coverage from the match itself was like a two-page photo spread essay, mm-hmm. you know, showing Doug Lunny whipping my ass in the Winnipeg Sun. And one of those pictures actually made it into the year-end issue of the Winnipeg Sun as one of the photos of the year. Okay. So, you know, being able to sort of leverage, you know, the, you know my interest in writing and my love for professional wrestling has been kind of a recurring theme for me over the years where I've been able to sort of like meld both of those interests. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then of course that definitely ultimately led to the books. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, we, we mentioned, well, I mentioned earlier, you know, 30 years almost wrestling, you know, in your career so far, you had started with RCW here in Winnipeg, correct? Yeah. River city wrestling. 
And you were a big a big part of that up until I mean you had was it you moved over to CWF? Um, what happened was there was a lot of there was a lot of turnover, uh, you know, especially when you're dealing with wrestling. You know, at this very grassroots level, uh, there's not a lot of money to be made. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you have, you know, a crowd of 100 or 150, uh, but you're trying to balance off all the expenses of running a show, it's very stressful. And, and wrestling as regularly as we were, like we were wrestling every second week at the Chalmers Community Club and we might pick up a bar show or another community center show or a festival or something. Um, you know, when, when, you, when you lose money... It, those those expenses add up time over time and mm-hmm. and so at the beginning of uh, 1996 you know Wayne Stanton you know I went to the crew and he said listen I want out you know I, yeah. I can't continue to lose money um, and at that time there was guys that had already left the organization who uh, didn't didn't leave happily let's say mm-hmm. uh, so they contacted me and they said hey we understand that Wayne's looking to sell We'd like you to broker the deal, but it will be our money. Uh, we're going to push Wayne Stanton out of business. Okay. And at that moment in time, I was really disgruntled with Wayne over, you know, whatever dispute at that time. This is now like 25 years ago. Yeah. Um, and so I agreed to the deal, um, even though I knew up front it was shady. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we bought out Wayne Stanton, and then within weeks, like, he realized what had transpired. Um, it's probably like one of the biggest regrets of my career, that one transaction. Okay. Um, but in the end, that, that group that took over didn't really have the legs, uh, you know, to carry it forward. So I think they ran two or three events and then they were done. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's about the time that Ernie Todd entered the picture and said, I want to get into professional wrestling. Yeah. And over the course of the summer, uh, primarily through Bobby Collins, uh, he was able to get going with what eventually became the Canadian Wrestling Federation. Mm-hmm. And by the end of that summer, most of the guys were working for him. Mm-hmm. It seemed like the Canadian Wrestling Federation played a big part in Winnipeg wrestling at that time. Like they were, it seemed like they were the, almost the predominant promotion running in Winnipeg. I think like, you know, you had, you know, the CWF kind of come on the scene, 96, summer of 96, mm-hmm. um, you know, into 97, uh, Ernie was Ernie was a hard guy to work with mm-hmm. um, because he he wasn't a wrestling guy, he was a business guy, mm-hmm. and so when you have guys that are wrestlers that are used to functioning in the, it's a very cash only business and we don't record anything mm-hmm. uh, to a guy coming in saying no no we're going to pay you by check and the things are going to be more official. There's going to be a paper trail for everyone. yeah. Then you know guys started to get a little bit you know antsy about that, but. Uh, and, and Ernie and I butted head, heads a lot because, mm-hmm. because he was a, already a, a businessman that had successfully built a business. Um, he wasn't as concerned about the etiquette of wrestling as I was. Yeah. You know, he was trying to do business. And so as a guy sort of speaking as a voice of the talent uh, and him saying, no, 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 we need to run this as a business if we want to make money. Um, we never had a very long relationship <laughs> at any given time. There was lots of star- starts and stops to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know we did, we just reached a point like you know, within a year where okay we're not going to work together and then we had about six months away from each other and then did work together and but all in all at, at the end of two years we just realized it's better if we don't yeah and you do your thing and I'll go do my thing yeah uh, I 
kind of skipped over one of the notes I had, and that was the formation of the Wild Ones with Robbie Royce. Um, I mean, Robbie, like yourself, is still going strong today, you know? Yeah. And at that time, you two were two of the young up-and-comers on the Winnipeg wrestling scene. Yeah. How did that partnership come to be? We we kind of forced the promotion's hand in that case. So at the time, this was 1994, uh, River City Wrestling had just gotten a community TV deal through Shaw Cable. Mm -hmm. And uh, Robbie was always a guy with incredible talent and timing. Uh, so he could and very versatile so he could run with the junior heavyweights and he could run with the heavyweights so he was being put in a tag team situation to help build up one of the the guys that they wanted to be a main event uh, baby face mm-hmm. and I was you know in the undercard in a tag team with caveman Broda which was very much a contrast of styles yes for, for me and so I thought well I'm I'm you know, at the time, not really appreciating the opportunity. I think if I was given that opportunity now, I would appreciate it differently. But I just looked at it as, well, I'm going to be relegated to be the comedy segment. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm with Caveman Broder, and it's going to be punch, stomp, and kick and, uh, and silly spots. And at that time, I'm, you know, 18 years old. You know, I want to be a serious wrestler. Mm-hmm. So what happened was uh, Eddie Watts had just come back from Mexico, and he had had some gear that he was using in a tag team with a Buddy Wayne in Mexico, mm-hmm. a couple of nice white vinyl jackets with some tassels on them. And he said, hey, I'm selling these jackets. And so Robbie Royce bought one, and I bought one. And we were both insisting to wear these new jackets that we had in yeah. our individual segments on the card. So I might be out there in the opening match with Caveman Broda in my white jacket, and then four matches later, <laughs> Robbie Royce would come out in his. And eventually the promoter said, like, listen, we can't have this, guys. Yeah. And we're like, well, you know what, like... We're not making a lot of money, and we invested our money in these jackets, so I guess we should be a tag team, <laughs> you know, and it, it, was, it was a really good fit because, you know, we were both young, hungry guys um, that, that saw a vision of ourselves beyond Winnipeg, mm-hmm. and so, you know, once we became a tag team, um, you know, we, we were the, this young babyface team in the mix of a lot of really grizzled veterans. Mm-hmm. Um, and it and it really took off. Mm-hmm. So I think you know over the course of the next year or so, like we had like over a hundred matches together as a team in Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and you know Ro- Robbie was great at helping me with my in ring work, and I feel like I helped him sort of bring up his promo game, mm-hmm. and we complemented each other very well. You know, at that time, the dynamic of the the hot young upstart team against the grizzled old veterans is one that I've always been a fan of in wrestling because I think it is it, it it's a simple story to tell, but there can always be layers to it. You can always do so much with it. Yeah, and it, you know, it was such a busy schedule. I mean, and the veterans that we had to work with at that time, you know, we had uh, Sergeant Tom Steele who had wrestled as J.R. Bundy in Vancouver in the mm-hmm. in the eighties. We had Mike Stone, who had wrestled in Kansas City and Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Rick Patterson would come around every now and then. Of course, he was Leatherface in Japan for many years. Eddie Watts would drop into town every now and then. You had Doug McCall, who had worked the territory. So there were so many veteran guys for us to work with and, and work off of. Um, you know, Kerry Brown and Brian Jewell in that mix, Bobby J. Mm-hmm. Like so many incredible characters um, that it was really a dynamic time to learn. After you had, you know, went over to CWF, you had worked there for a few years, you made a return to River City Wrestling. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, at that time, you see, I mean, there's a, there was a lot of younger guys that were coming up that yeah. are, you know, you had your Rob Stardoms, your uh, Will Damons, I think, um, Donnie yeah. DiCaprio's, all those younger guys coming up. So yeah. here's you, you've got your experience coming in already. You've got these younger guys and you're, you're all joining to put on the best product you can now with River City Wrestling. Yeah. It was a really good time because, like, Wayne had actually put, a, like, a, an ad through Laurie Mustard in the Winnipeg Sun. Like, there was actually in, in Laurie's column, it'd be like, calling all wrestlers, you know, a new wrestling school open in Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we attracted a lot of attention. And so we had, at that time, uh, Will Damon, Donnie DiCaprio, uh, Kevin Cannon, mm-hmm. and uh, Chris Stevens were, had trained with Don Callis at his school. But now they needed ring time. So you got these four guys on the scene, uh, and, and J.C. Dirksen was with them in the, at that time too. So it was those five guys, and then we had you know Ryan Price, Johnny Malibu, Rob Stardom, uh, Kenny Omega was in the mix at that time too. Mm-hmm. So you had a, a lot of young guys that are just hungry to work and hungry to try new things out. Um, so that was really, really a fantastic learning experience. Um, you know, I think. Wayne's motivations to run at that time when he restarted River City Wrestling, and I think he's admitted this multiple times, was mostly just to annoy Ernie Todd. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, <laughs> we, you know, we were running, you know, a community center and a bar show every week, at least, sometimes two. So you, you had these guys that are coming in and want to learn while well, they're getting like two or three matches a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, for myself, you know, at, at that time, that's, you know, we're now like 2000, 2001. That's when I was really starting to get serious to say, well, you know, if I'm going to do something with my career, like now is the time to really buckle down and focus on making sure I'm sending out those tapes and making sure that I'm connecting with those promoters to, to go bigger than local. Mm-hmm. Now, because when I was researching about your career, I noticed, you know, we had talked a little bit before about Northwest Territories. You had also went out to the East Coast. In the early 2000s, it seemed like that was almost unheard of. Nowadays, all the time you'll see it. But mm-hmm. back then, you didn't have the same sort of... Um, opportunities options to like get your footage out there you'd have to mail it out yourself whereas now you can go up on youtube you can see so and so find out everything you need to them what sort of difficulties did you have getting your name out there like that at that time i mean one of the big venues for for getting your name out was we would get the the wrestling observer newsletter back Mm -hmm. when it was in hard copy okay and in the back pages they would have always have this section called the readers pages and you would often have advertisements from promoters saying, hey, looking for talent for shows or looking for talent for tours or whatever. So we, we were really hungry. So we would like start to look at those. And unfortunately, sometimes we were getting those copies of The Observer like a month or two months behind. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we would reach out to, you know, Demolition Axe is looking for talent to go to India or, you know, uh, uh, George Cannon is looking for guys for tours. Uh, I remember that one. It was kind of one of my most embarrassing moments is I called george cannon to see about getting booked but he had died so i'm like i should have known that mm-hmm. uh, but you know we were just looking at everything and i remember you know in 95 steve Stryker, robbie royce and i were sitting around and we we're like you know we just need to get out we mm-hmm. need to go and find some place where we can go and at that time like most of the independents were dead mm-hmm. you know like ecw was running in its initial form but it was still at that point not national it was largely just guys from the northeastern u.s yeah so we really looked at you know, the tapes that we enjoyed watching. We said, we, should, we need to try to get into Memphis. Okay. Because USWA was still going strong. It was one of the last remaining independents. The style of wrestling they did mm-hmm. you know, you know, was a good match for us. So I remember you know, it was like Christmas time, 1994. 
we just said, okay, we're going we're gonna to commit to a trip to the southern states. We're going to watch the observer from now until then and uh, look for opportunities that exist, reach out to those promoters, put some dates together, but we're going to go do two weeks mm-hmm. in Tennessee. And as the trip got closer, not everybody that had committed followed through, yeah. but uh, we went down uh, for two weeks to Tennessee and uh, you know, did some independence in West Virginia and North Carolina. Um, and went down to uh, the Mid-South Coliseum. And I've had a good laugh lately uh, watching episodes of Young Rock when he's talking about his time in Memphis uh, because it's right around the same time that we were there. Mm -hmm. So uh, we first went in 95, a year before The Rock was there. And then in 96, I went again with Andy Anderson, and we arrived the week after he'd been called up. Okay. So some of those characters, and you know, whether legitimate or that they've made fictional mm-hmm. uh, were some of the players there. So the guy that was booking in Memphis was a guy named Randy Hales. Yes. And uh, we had called him ahead from North Carolina and we said, Hey Randy, you know, we're in the, in the area. Uh, you know, we'd like to come down and, and meet with you. He said, okay, come down, uh, come down to uh, the mid South Coliseum on Monday. And we're like, okay, like we're, we're stoked. This is our big opportunity. So we go down to the Mid-South Coliseum, and we get there, and, uh, and then Randy Hales completely kayfabes us. He goes, well, hey, like, you know, we booked these shows like a month and ahead, so there's no spots for you, but you're welcome just to sit and watch the show. Mm-hmm. And so we were kind of dejected by that, but you know, we got to watch the USWA show that night in, yeah. in the historic Mid-South Coliseum. The following year when I went with Andy Anderson, it was kind of a similar story. We called him. We were in a hotel room in Charlotte, North Carolina. We had just done an indie show the night before. And we said, hey, Randy, we're in the area. You know, we would like to connect with you. And he goes, yeah, sure. Come to Louisville. Now, Louisville, Kentucky is a full two days drive from mm-hmm. Charlotte, North Carolina. <clears throat> so it's a bit of a commitment. So Andy and I drive two days, get to Louisville for the exact same thing to happen. Oh. He's like, hey, guys, I never actually said you were booked, but uh, give me your pictures. And if anything comes up down the road, I'll let you know. Mm-hmm. So we were sitting up in the stands, and, I mean, I was a little bit, you know, deflated, but, I mean, this has happened before, so mm-hmm. I, wasn't, I wasn't broken, but Andy was upset. Andy was angry, and uh, I remember we were sitting there, you know, about midway up the, the seats in the, on, the, on the side, and all of a sudden he gets up, and he kicks a seat in front of us, like, as hard as he can. I thought the back of the seat was going to come off, mm-hmm. and he storms off out to the concourse of the arena, and I think, oh, well, I'll just let him go. You burn off some steam. You know, I understand. Like he's, you know, was hopeful that he'd get a spot and then didn't really pan out. So I'll, I'll let him go. And about five minutes later, I see him coming back into the arena and his, his arm's just waving like he's cutting a promo on somebody. And I'm like, who's he talking to? And then I realized, oh, shit, he's talking to Burt Prentice. And Burt Prentice was uh, a promoter who was very closely related to uh, Jerry Lawler at that time ran some of the USWA towns, but at that time he was also the manager for the NWA world champion, the Colorado kid. Okay. So I'm like, Oh shit, what is he doing? Mm-hmm. Right? So I go flying down the stairs and go over there trying to like, you know, correct whatever's happened. But as I get to them, they're just parting. And I'm like, Andy, what did you just do? And he says, I think I just got his book tomorrow night in Poplar Bluff, Missouri. And uh, so Bert Prentice, he, you know, he told the story to Bert, and Bert was like, you know what, I, I understand your frustration because I've been telling you know, these guys they need to get more young talent in here, some fresh faces. You know, and Andy at that time was you know, 225 pounds, you know, really chiseled. Mm-hmm. You know, like, he looked like Brian Christopher. Okay. Uh, so 
the next night we go and, and we work for Burt Prentice in Poplar Bluff, Missouri. At the end of the night, he goes, uh, what are you guys doing tomorrow? We're like, we're not doing anything tomorrow. He goes, why don't you come to Jonesboro? All right, we'll see you in Jonesboro. Yeah. So we go to Jonesboro, Arkansas. We get there, and he goes, okay, uh, we'll have you guys up, I think, third match. And then, you know, as we were come back in with our stuff, he's like, oh, well, we had some guys that we didn't think were going to make it. Turns out they're here, so we don't have a spot for you tonight, but just mm-hmm. hang out. So, okay, well, I feel like we got a foot in the door, so we'll just hang out. So at the end of the night, you know, Bert, Bert comes and goes, hey, what are you guys doing tomorrow? I'm like, we're not doing anything tomorrow. He goes, why don't you come down to the Big One Flea Market in Memphis, which they'd moved the house show from the year before in the Mid-South Coliseum to this flea market in the north of Memphis. So we're like, okay, we'll come down to the, to the Big One. And we just feel like we've got our foot in the door now, like we've got somebody that's kind of like jockeying for us in the office. So we show up at the Big One, and uh, Bert comes up from the locker and goes, hey, we got nothing for you tonight. But I just talked to Jerry Lawler, and he, he needs two guys for TV tomorrow. Do you want to do it? Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, we want to do it. Like, you know, I'm trying to like, trying to stay cool and calm and collective on the outside, but I'm like screaming on the inside, like, yes, yes. Memphis TV. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, this is great. So most of the time, you know, because Andy and I are trying to save money, a lot of times we were just sleeping in the car. Mm-hmm. But that night we're like, hey, we need to have a good good impression tomorrow, so we need to get a hotel room, show up like clean shaven and ready for this opportunity. So we show up at the WMC TV studios at 8 o'clock in the morning when they film the TV show. We get past security at the door, and we go in, and we're sitting back in the green room. And uh, all the guys are filing in. There's uh, uh, Road Dog and Sid Vicious and Bull Buchanan and Tommy Rich, Doug Gilbert, Wolfie D, uh, Jamie Dundee. All these guys are there. Uh, Jacqueline, who was at that time Miss Texas. Yeah. So we're like... Holy shit, like a big, a big, big break's about to happen. So as we're sitting there, uh, Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee, who booked the shows, they never came into the locker room. They always stayed like in their office. Yeah. But they sent Bruno Lauer back, Harvey Whippleman, to come and kind of do roll call, and then they would figure out the matches. So Harvey Whippleman comes back there, and he's like, okay, yeah, I see Tommy, I see Jamie, I see Sid. Da, 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 da. Then he looks up and goes, who are you two guys? And we're like, uh, Burt Prentice told us you needed some guys for TV. And immediately you saw all eyes in the room hit the floor. Oh. And I was like, son of a bitch. He just ribbed us and just like humiliated us in yeah. front of all these people. And so we were standing there and it felt like 10 minutes, but it was probably 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. Nobody's saying a word. There's a little bit of like under the breath snickering happening. And all of a sudden from the corner of the room, there's big bellowing voices. That son of a bitch. And it was Sid Vicious. And he said, he did the exact same thing to me when I broke in. He goes, I came down here because they said they needed guys for TV. And I stood in the corner with my dick in my hand. <laughs> and just like him, like, you know, reaching out like that, it just like broke the ice. Yeah. And it made it cool. But as it happened, uh, uh, Bruno came back in the, in the locker room about 15 minutes later and said, yeah, Gangrel is supposed to be here. But they're like a state away. They're not going to make it. I've got a spot for one guy. Mm-hmm. And at this point, I'm still so pissed. Like, I'm so angry at being ribbed. I said, Andy, you take the spot. Mm-hmm. And so Andy, at that time, had only been wrestling three months. And he worked at Memphis TV. And it, it, the first time ever he'd been a heel yeah. against Brian Christopher, Lawler's son. And uh, as a result of that, uh, they liked what he did. 
And when we got back to Canada, they called him three weeks later and said, we'd like you to come back to Memphis. Wow. And, you know, from there, like his career took off, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, So that was the the beginning, you know, for us. And it was just like, okay, we need to always keep looking for opportunities to get out because nobody's doing that for us. Mm -hmm. There's nobody calling us. And and then uh, for me, when my big break actually came in 2001, I was sitting at home on a Sunday night and Eddie Watts called me. And he was in uh, the Maritimes. Mm-hmm. And he said, listen, we need you to get on a bus, get on a plane. I don't care. But we need you in Halifax for Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Um, and bring two sets of gear because we got two guys here that aren't working out. And you're going to blow them both out. So I'm like, okay. <clears throat> so, you know, on a moment's notice as a kid in, in, in mid-20s, like I don't have that kind of money just mm-hmm. sitting around. So I remember like we had enough money to get me on a bus to Montreal. And so while I was on the bus trip to Montreal, my wife was calling to borrow money from my mother-in-law to get me the rest of the way. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I got into Halifax and I was wrestling under a mask in the opening match, jobbing out this one guy. And then I was coming back match three as Vance Nevada, jobbing out the other guy all the way around the loop that summer. Uh, And, and that was like the beginning, Mm -hmm. you know, and and then that tour, I was working with guys like Mike Hughes, Gary Williams, Chichi Cruz, Eddie Mm -hmm. Watts, Bobby Roode. Um, and then, you know, I was, I was kind of established then. Yeah. Yeah. After your venture out East, I mean, you really, I mean, you came back, you did top rope for a while, as you had mentioned. Um, and then it seemed like you would almost split your time between Manitoba and BC. Yeah. After the maritime tour, um, like my wife hated Winnipeg Mm -hmm. still hates Winnipeg. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) So, you know, when we moved to Winnipeg, it was kind of like, well, this is kind of a necessary evil because that's where wrestling was for me. But then when it took off and now I'm national, she says, listen, I'm happy that your career is going the way that you had envisioned, but we don't live in Winnipeg anymore. Mm -hmm. And she moved us to Vancouver while I was on the East coast. So when I left the East coast, it was like, uh, we, we all like piled into a, to a Ford uh, excursion, got everybody back to Winnipeg, met my wife, hopped on a Greyhound bus, and went to my new home in Surrey, B.C. That's uh, quite the surprise, eh? Yeah. <laughs> what was, I mean, obviously you had been traveling back and forth, but overall, what was your experience like wrestling in B.C.? You know what, when I got there, um, I think there was, kind of, there was kind of a combination of things. So in Winnipeg... Uh, I was really burnt out on the petty politics. Mm-hmm. You know, like there was nobody making a lot of money. Uh, and then there was all these micro moves. And at that time, you'd had the, the split off of, of uh, Premier Championship Wrestling from Top Rope. Uh, and, you know, it wasn't like to do anything bigger. It was ultimately to just do the same thing. Yeah. You know. Um, and so I knew when I got to BC, I don't want to have any involvement with the booking. I don't want to be a promoter. I just want to wrestle. Mm-hmm. And... And then the Maritimes tour, you know, leading into that, um, all our checks bounced on the way out. So I'm broke. I'm in a new territory. Mm -hmm. Um, A little bit burned out on wrestling altogether. Yeah. And so I remember one of my first meetings with Michelle Starr. uh, At that time, it was with ECCW. He he said, listen, I know you're established. You've been wrestling about eight years. You know, where do you want to fit on the card here? You know, like you, you tell me what you'd like to do. Mm-hmm. And I said, uh, if it's all the same to you, sir, I would just like to work the openers. 
And he looked at me like I had two heads. Like, mm-hmm. why would this guy that's had eight years just want to work the openers? And I would just, just wanted to rebuild from scratch. I, yeah. didn't, I didn't want to have an opportunity given to me uh, you know, because of my time. I wanted to, have, to be given the opportunity because of my work. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he granted my wish. And, and I was like the opening match villain uh, you know, for a year almost. Um, and, and what we did, it, it allowed me to sort of reinvent myself. So we had had, you know, Robbie Royce and I together collaboratively, we would always like spitball these, these gimmicks, you know, and, and sometimes it was a parody of something we'd seen, mm-hmm. you know, on, on television. And one of the ones that always amused me to death was, uh, you know, when Shawn Michaels was the world champion, he'd always cut these promos saying, I'm the showstopper, I'm yeah. Mr. Main Event, blah, 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 blah. And I thought, well, what if we had like, you know, the anti-hero to that, he's like, I'm the opener, right? I'm the curtain jerker, right? I am, you know, and, and someone that is so proud to be mm-hmm. the opener. And I, I just thought this has legs. Mm-hmm. And so I said, Michelle Starr, here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to be the opener. And here's how I want to pitch this, right? So I'd go out as the first heel that you see in the night. And I would cut that promo before they've seen anything, right? And we'd say, ladies and gentlemen, whether you know it or not, I am the single most important person in your life right now. Right? I'm the opener. Long before you go to get merchandise at intermission, way before you go fill your face with hot dogs, and of course, long, long, long before the main event, you've got the opener. Mm-hmm. Right? So you've got to show me some love or else I'm going back through the curtain and you're not getting any wrestling tonight. And it, it just allowed me the opportunity, whether, whether I won or lost, to, to, to reconnect with an audience in a new way. And I probably would have still been the opener uh, in Vancouver till the end of my career, except at the same time, I was still taking bookings elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And so I'd go to Saskatoon for pro outlaw wrestling and I'd be in a, like a, a kendo stick match against Wavel star. And I'd come back to Vancouver with some fresh scars on my forehead. <clears throat> and eventually Michelle star said, you're holding out on me. You son of a bitch, <laughs> no more openers for you. And from there, he started like a rocket-like ascent to the main event spot. And uh, within four months or five months, I was the ECCW champion. And he had me in that spot for 14 months. And then eventually promoted me as the NWA Canadian champion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that friendship and, and his belief in me has continued. Because then later on, you know, about five years down the road, when he was promoting All-Star Wrestling... Uh, he brought me in as one of the first champions and I was a five-time champion for him. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, British Columbia was a really good opportunity for me um, because it it was about my work and not about my politicking. Yeah. Uh, But also, you know, and and Steve Stryker would say this all the time. He would say, Winnipeg is geographically castrated. Yes. Right? So if you're an East Coast guy... Uh, you've got access to get into Maine and Vermont relatively easily. You mm-hmm. know, if you're a Toronto guy, you know, or a, or a Windsor guy, you've got Detroit and New York yeah. right close by. For us, the closest wrestling center to us at that time was Minneapolis, which is eight hours away. But at that time, it was a very closed circuit. There might be like five promotions running in Minneapolis, but all using the same guys that are from Minneapolis and Wisconsin. It seemed like at that point, because the AWA had finished up early 90s. Yeah. And then no one had really claimed that spot. No. So. So, but in Vancouver, you had the connections to Portland, you had mm-hmm. the connections to Seattle. And even because Michelle Starr is originally from California, so you had this like California connection as well. Mm-hmm. Plus the 
the Vancouver office was heavily uh, involved with the NWA at that time. So you had the NWA champions coming in, but also Michelle started leveraging his own relationships because he was working regularly in Japan and Korea and the UK. Mm-hmm. So then you had this international array of talent. So in, you know, in that period of time, you know, when I was in Vancouver, you know, I'm headlining with the Honky Tonk Man. I'm headlining with Jim the Anvil Neidhart. I'm headlining with Matt Bourne. I'm working with Chance Beckett right mm-hmm. around the time that he, you know, was in Pro Wrestling Illustrated for kind of a breakout performance in the States. Mm-hmm. So there was lots of stuff happening. And then working with Japanese talent, you know, uh, Asian Cougar and Yukihide Ueno. Uh, it, was, it was remarkable. Um, and, uh, you know, Vancouver, I would say even more, I mean, Winnipeg is, is always going to have a soft spot in my heart as the place where I started and the place where I learned the business and, and you know, still maintain some strong friendships with people here. But yeah. Vancouver is home, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I never realized, you know, after, you know, I had lived in Vancouver for about seven years and then left, you know, to pursue other career opportunities. And then uh, they called me to induct me into the All-Star Wrestling Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. And I just remember driving back into Surrey with my wife and us looking at each other saying, like, this feels like we're coming home. Yeah. Uh, you know, versus any other place we'd live or traveled or, or spent any time. And so when we went back to, to Vancouver in 2019, uh, you know, and, and got back into the mix with all-star wrestling, it just, it just felt home. Mm-hmm. It felt comfortable. Now, recently you released Uncontrolled Chaos. Yeah. And I mean, as anyone listening can tell, it, you are an, a plethora of wrestling knowledge. Let's talk about how Uncontrolled Chaos all came to be. Sure. Well, I think, you know, the long story is it really started in 1994 uh, when I was trying to save 15 bucks. Mm-hmm. Um, you, know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, when you consider like how much time and energy and money has been spent on the project, you're like, why didn't you just spend the 15 bucks? But uh, at that time, you know, I wasn't even living in Winnipeg yet, but I was getting Wrestling World magazine. Yep. And I was interested in the history of the sport. And there was a guy out of Arizona who was proposing to have, like, this wrestling historical society, and the membership was 15 bucks. And I'm like, I don't have 15 bucks, But maybe if I, you know, do some original research and contribute, I can kind of have a sweat equity and I can become a member of this, this thing. Mm-hmm. So that summer, uh, whenever I'd come into wrestling uh, for matches in Winnipeg, I would come in early in the morning, and I would go to the uh, Winnipeg Archives, which uh, is right behind the, the Hudson Bay store. Yep. And that used to be the Winnipeg Municipal Auditorium, where wrestling was held in the 40s and 50s and 60s. So it was kind of this like cool irony that here I am, like spending hours and hours poring over microfilms because newspapers weren't digital in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the same place that Luthez and, you know, Buddy Rogers, Edward Carponche had all stepped. Mm-hmm. You know, here we are in the same building. Um, and that was the beginning. And I started collecting results, um, you know, because I, I was interested. And, and then it just, it just kind of snowballed, you know, so you'd, you'd get a lot of stuff on Winnipeg. And you think, well, I pretty well have Winnipeg covered. You know, maybe I should, like, reach out and do Saskatchewan. There could have been a lot of stuff happening in Saskatchewan. Yeah. And then, you know, well, we might as well do Alberta. And then next thing you know, um, you know, fast forward, you know, 25 years, this file of, of wrestling results is 6,000 pages mm-hmm. uh, from 1867 to the present. 
you know, so if anybody says I wrestled in Canada, I can tell you, yes, you did. Or no, you definitely did not. Mm-hmm. And, and it's been one of my great pleasures to debunk some of those myths of people <laughs> who have said, yeah, I was a wrestler for Stu Hart. No, you weren't mm-hmm. not at any time, not ever. Um, but really it, it came into focus, you know, um, we were, I just started booking again for all-star wrestling at the beginning of 2020. Okay. And we were just starting to get things ramped up when the pandemic hit. Now we've canceled live events. And it, initially, I don't know if you remember this, but initially they said, oh, it's eight weeks. We're going to shut down live events for eight yeah. weeks. And being cynical wrestlers that we are, we're like, there's no way this is only eight weeks. This is probably six months. Mm-hmm. But let's, let's take advantage of the downtime to do something productive so that when this is over in six months, we, we hit the ground running. So in that time, you know, we had the guys come in and we recorded like months and months worth of promos out of character promos. They're just kind of sitting down talking to guys about like, Hey, why did you get into wrestling? Mm -hmm. What's your dream match? You know, all that kind of stuff. And it was really good. And we had enough content. We shot it like on the 6th of July. We had enough content to carry us through to Thanksgiving weekend. Okay. So we thought, okay, by the time this content runs out, now we're right into time when the shows are back up and running. We'll get together for another promo day and guys can start cutting their promos about their upcoming matches. Mm-hmm. But we got to Thanksgiving and uh, there was no end in sight on mm-hmm. this thing, right? So it's now going to be to the end of the year. And I thought, I just need to like set this down because every start and stop is just so mentally draining. It, yeah. It, you know, it's, it's killing me. So I said, I need a project. And, uh, you know, I toyed with the idea of doing a sequel to my last book, which was in 2009, which is Wrestling in the Canadian West, mm-hmm. just a history of the West Four Provinces. Uh, people had said, well, why don't you do Wrestling in the Canadian East? And I'm like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. And then I thought, as I started to get down there, I'm like, well, it's also been 10 years since the last one, so it's time to update that content anyway. Mm-hmm. If we're going to do it, why don't we do it in a big way and do it as a national history of professional wrestling in Canada? And... I've got nothing but time, mm-hmm. you know, like there's not even the, you know, the thing, you know, sometimes you get that you know, request from your wife, that hint saying, Hey, why don't we, you know, go away for the weekend? There's no going away. Yeah. You, you're very limited to what you can yeah. do. Yeah. What do you want to do? Walk to the park down the street? Like there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to be. There's mm-hmm. no, there's no public outings or venues. Uh, you know, regardless of, of quote unquote vac status at that time. So, you know, it was basically, you know, when you get home and you have your free time, like be at that computer, mm-hmm. you know, plugging away, you know, filling in some of the, some of the blanks, particularly for Quebec, um, because the, the, the Quebec wrestling scene, man, like the back to the thirties was insane. Mm-hmm. There was wrestling every night of the week in Montreal. Really? In the 1930s. My knowledge of wrestling out East, it's minimal compared to on the West. I mean... I was familiar with what the Rougeaus were doing um, because, I mean, they had their huge uh, feud with, I'm drawing a blank now. Um, sure. Um, well, they feuded with the Vachans over the rights of the territory. The Vachans, and I was thinking of the blood feud that they had. Yeah, the Garvins. Yes, the Garvins. Thank yeah. you. Yes, I remember that. That was a huge part of the uh, Quebec and Montreal out there. Yeah. But that's like most of what I know. That's about it. And that's been, I think, one of, the, one of the coolest things about the book is you'll have somebody that's maybe a, a diehard Stampede Wrestling fan, for mm-hmm. example. 
And so they're, you know, getting the book and they're, they're flipping to the stampede section, they're reading it and they're like, ah, yes, this is what I remember. You know, you're bringing back so many fond memories of stampede, but I had no idea what was going on in the Maritimes, mm -hmm. right? I had no idea what was going on in Vancouver, you know, is very much, you know, very loyal to their home brand, their home team. So that's been really cool where people are like, wow, like now I know so much mm -hmm. about what was happening in the timeline or when this was happening in stampede. It was because of something that happened on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. we're, we're starting to understand, like, the annual schedule of Leo Burke was incredible. Like, mm -hmm. that guy almost had no days off in a year, right? He would, he would be in the Maritimes in the summer, starting from about, say, May long weekend until Labor Day. Mm -hmm. Immediately leave there. He might go do a two months or eight, eight weeks in the States for somebody that had asked for him. And then back to Stampede, and he would be wrestling for Stampede over the winter until it was spring again, and then back to the Maritimes. Leo Burke wrestled 4,000 matches in Canada. No, 3,000 matches in Canada, more than 4,000 matches in his career. That is ridiculous. That's you know, unheard of nowadays. You would never get anything close to that. No. I mean, you got a guy like you know Chris Jericho, who's probably in the 2,200 match range, mm -hmm. you know, and he's a guy that's been going for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the Leo Burke record, I don't think will ever be eclipsed. Um, and, and yeah, it, it, it's, I would say that he's one of the long overlooked characters in history, which was another motivator for this book is, you know what? Yeah. You know what we've, there's been some really great books, mm -hmm. you know, no, no doubt about it. You know, the Greg Oliver books are fantastic. Um, Heath McCoy did a good one on the stampede territory. That's a very good book. Pat LaPrade and Bertrand Hebert's books mm -hmm. on Quebec and Quebec wrestlers, amazing. Uh, and there's been some really good books on specific territories. Mm -hmm. So Gary Howard did one on uh, the Kasabowski circuit of Northern Ontario. Okay. Um, I'm blanking on the guy's name now, but there was a guy in the early 80s that had done a, a book about the Bear Man's territory in Southern Ontario um, that's been re-released uh, through Crowbar Press. But there hadn't been, you know, a national representation and when you do that you really break down well, okay it, this this story of canadian wrestling is more than just the hearts the rougeos and the cormiers mm -hmm. there are so many other guys we need to talk about mm -hmm. and very often those were the villains in those territories who were making the hearts and the rougeos and the cormiers you know the royalty of their of their region mm -hmm. and so uh you know one of the greatest like sort of reactions that I saw to the book was, was last night in Saskatoon where, you know, the, there was a circuit there that ran in, in you know, 2000 to 2004 called pro outlaw wrestling. Mm -hmm. And, uh, some of the guys that had wrestled at that time, you know, came to the show and they, they bought the book and they're like, Hey, is there anything about us in here? And I flipped to the page and they, they saw like, here's a picture of a poster that they're on. And, and they just looked in the, at each other and said, we're in here. He told the story of us. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and just like probably the first press they ever got, the only press they might ever get for their involvement in professional wrestling, there's probably more meaningful than just telling another story about Chris Jericho or Bret Hart. Um, and so that has been incredibly validating and, and heartwarming for me. I know like one thing I love to do is I'll go up on cage match and I'll look up old results of, you know, shows in Winnipeg, you know, and just seeing some of the names that would come through where they are now, or even just hearing how much like people were respected and known worldwide, you know, like you take Chi Chi Cruz, for example, yeah. and he's beloved all across Canada, his work and everything about him. Like he's known, 
Whereas yes. some people, you might ask someone, a, a Winnipeg wrestling fan, be like, oh yeah, he wrestled, you know, for Candelo. And that's yeah. all they know. Yes. But no, he had a career. He did, you know, and, and, and Chichi Cruz is, is kind of one of those almost success stories that, you know, we all look at. I mean, I remember working in Winnipeg in the 90s and early 2000s, you know, when she, we would watch Chichi Cruz in awe. Mm-hmm. You know, he was kind of like the guy where you're like, you know, this guy's so good. Like, there's no way that this guy doesn't get a contract. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in 97, when he went to Memphis and now he was in the loop, you know, and he was, you know, he was in Memphis at the time when WWE was sending their people there to develop. So he was there, uh, you know, when after Kane had done his his uh, fake diesel yeah. run, he went back down to Memphis to, you know, keep going and get repackaged to, to what eventually was Kane. Uh, he was there. Uh, R- Rick Titan, the fake razor, mm-hmm. was there. Brian Christopher was there. This is just before the run of Too Cool. Mm-hmm. So he was in there with the right mix of guys, you know, and 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 the opportunity to to liaise with WWE talent relations on a regular basis. And we thought this is it. This mm-hmm. is his big break. Uh, but when he came back to Canada and then wasn't able to get into the states again. Uh, and, and kind of like that was the end of the opportunity. Yeah. I think for many of us at that time, we thought, well, shit, you know, Chichi Cruz is the best guy in Winnipeg. And if he's not getting signed, then there's no hope for any of us. Mm-hmm. And I think, it, you know, it really deflated a lot of us at that time. You mentioned the Leo Burke and the amount of matches he worked. Was there anything else that really surprised you that you uncovered? I think one of the things that, uh, it's kind of a point of pride and then also a little bit as a fan it, it crushed me a little bit was you know in telling the story sometimes you have to dispel some myths mm-hmm. so you know one of them that I can think of off the top of my head is um, you know the notion that Roddy Piper's first match was at Winnipeg Arena against Larry the Axe Henning uh, and he got destroyed in, in 30 seconds mm-hmm. that match did happen mm-hmm. but it wasn't his first match his first match was in a Winnipeg Community Center against Tony Candelo. Okay. But you, you, you could kind of forgive that and say, well, yeah, okay, well, maybe he wasn't counting that. He was talking about his first big-time match. Mm-hmm. But the match with Larry Henning wasn't even his first AWA match. His first AWA match in Winnipeg was against Ric Flair. Okay. Which, now knowing their combined history, that <laughs> seems like a story you want to tell, right? Yeah. Because they're like lifelong buddies, but that friendship began at the Winnipeg Arena in 1972, mm-hmm. right? But no, the, we've had this story about, about Larry the Axe Henning, and there's, there's definitely other myths and legends along the way that, that have been sort of told and retold that get busted, mm-hmm. you know, in the course of this book. But also stories that we've never seen published that you're like, wait a minute, this is a very interesting story. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, you know, in Montreal in the 60s, um, Johnny Rougeau had just started his territory. Mm-hmm. So this would be about 1965. And he was, he was sort of seizing the opportunity to take over the territory because Eddie Quinn, who had promoted Montreal for 30 years, died. Mm-hmm. So they, Montreal sort of thought Eddie, uh, Yvonne Robert was the natural successor. Uh, but Johnny Rougeau scooped him and then he sort of got the rights to promote Montreal. But after about six months of promoting, Johnny Rougeau, um, maybe believing in the strength of his sub- celebrity in Montreal, mm-hmm. decided to run for political office. And during that political run, uh, had a run-in with uh, a son of a local politician. That son later went on to become Canadian Prime Minister Paul Martin. 
where uh, Johnny Rougeau, more specifically his brother Jacques Rougeau, mm-hmm. broke Paul Martin's nose. <laughs> so the details of that are in the book. Yeah. Where can people find this book? So the best place, uh, the best, best two places, uh, they can go to uncontrolledchaosbook.com, mm-hmm. and that'll take you directly to the Friesen Press uh, website where you can order it direct, uh, or you can go to amazon.ca, uh, and it's, it's been very well received uh, in recent weeks. We got up to number two in wrestling books in the last few weeks. Uh, and that's competing against books like Moxley's autobiography mm-hmm. and, and the new book on the Sheik, uh, mm-hmm. Blood and Fire. And, and a lot of these $0 free with your Audible subscription books, we were right in the mix with those guys. So, uh, yeah, it's doing very well on Amazon as well in hardcover, paperback, mm-hmm. and ebook. Um, before I let you go, because, you know, you do have your uh, evening here at Primos, um, I have to ask everyone for a match recommendation. One that you think the listener should go check out. Just something that you enjoy watching, whether it's up on YouTube, the network, wherever. But just something you think that they should go check out. I think you know some of the best treasures in terms of uh, finding matches are usually, if you can get your hands on the old uh, Coliseum video, best of the WWF videos, because you get these matches from Boston Garden or the Philadelphia Spectrum or Madison Square Garden that weren't pay-per-view matches. Mm-hmm. They were just house show matches, but in a lot of cases, they have some magic. And there's one in particular that I enjoy. It was a singles match. I think it was from Philadelphia Spectrum between Brian Blair and Greg Valentine, where there's just some innovative uh, exchanges in, mm-hmm. in the early moments of that match where you're like, I've never seen this before. Or since, uh, and I think that there's a lot of of the art of professional wrestling can be found and rediscovered and represented as brand new mm-hmm. to a generation that didn't even know that it existed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I always recommend if you can find that best of the WWF uh, footage from back in the day. There's some gems. For those listening, if they're not already following you, where can they find you on social media? Uh, you can find me on Facebook. Uh, you can follow sort of the, the activity that's happening on the book, uh, Facebook at Uncontrolled Chaos Book. And I'm also uh, tent- really, really taking uh, small baby steps and learning Instagram. <laughs> uh, and I'm at BFG underscore Vance. Vance, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you so, so much to Vance Nevada for joining me on the Grainmaker Wrestling Podcast. Honestly, it was an incredible chat, and I wish that there was video of my expression through some of it because I was in awe hearing some of the stories that you just heard. So thank you so much to Vance for joining me. Thank you for checking out the podcast. I say it every time. I will always say it. I appreciate you taking time out of your day to listen to me talk about wrestling. So if it's your first time listening, you can find me up on Twitter at GrainmakerPod, uh, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, all Grainmaker Wrestling Podcast, so you can find me on there. I post some video stuff up on YouTube, so definitely check it out, and uh, up on all podcast streaming platforms. Also, if you are a fan of the podcast, I have some t-shirts available for sale, 25 bucks a piece, very fashionable t-shirts, and uh, I can get them to you in person, or if you're elsewhere in Canada, I can ship them out to you. Very, very affordable shipping. In the States, if you're listening, the best bet is to go to whatamaneuver.net, search Grainmaker Wrestling Podcast, and grab a shirt off there. I would say for Canadians to do that as well, 
but with the shipping on exchange, it's easier for me just to hook you up with the shirts. So I think that covers the socials, t-shirts, all of that fun stuff. So thanks again for checking out the podcast. We'll talk soon.